Hello, and welcome to the third season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is John Verderber. John is a theater writer whose work has been performed at venues including Broadway Comedy Club and The Duplex. His work has also been showcased at the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, which he participated in for several years. As a commentator and reviewer, his writing has been published in New York and Time Out magazines. We're going to talk today about the Stephen Sondheim and James Goldman musical, Follies. Hey, John, thank you so much for returning to the podcast. Oh, I'm very happy to do so. We have so much time now, and uh, it's great to catch up and talk about musicals. Well, great. Um, we're going to, even though we know you from previous episodes, we'll do some more get to know our guest questions. Uh, which musical has had the greatest impact on you? Well, it's it's funny you should ask that, Shoshana, because Athalis, the show we're going to talk about today, is one of them. Um, I think that uh, I discovered it at a fairly impressionable age, <clears throat> an age where I kind of was thinking about becoming a writer in my teens, and I was always taken with the uh, how it played with time and space, and there wasn't a lot of lot but it was more of a character study it was moody it was uh it, it dealt with people who are middle-aged and i think that we'll talk about this more later on but i think when you're younger and you see follies you think oh you know that never will be me and the older i get you know leaving my my 20s going into my 30s i think oh, it's possible watch out well, you know 10 years from now watch out what uh, what might happen but but i think that it it, it, it it had an enormous effect on me and there are two others um carousel certainly did uh in terms of i remember seeing the movie version um my grandfather's basement in the poconos on a vhs tape and i was about eight and i was struck by soliloquy and how much character can be packed into one song, um, and how it's a, it's, he's a difficult character, and you're not sure if you like him, and you get to, if not like him, understand him, and sort of root for his change by the end of the by the end of the seven minutes is a tremendous uh, 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 achievement, uh, especially early on in the development of the book musical. You know, in the forties, it was kind of a game changer and uh when i saw great gardens as a teenager i thought to myself um it solidified my desire to write shows and i thought to myself you know that's the kind of show um i want to write you know Mm. that's the kind of experience i would want to give to an audience if you were to require our president or government leaders to see one musical which one would you have them see I don't think our current president uh, will have the attention span to sit through a musical. Um, I mean, I, I've heard he loved Evita, and that makes sense. Um, but uh, I, I, 
I don't know. I, I don't know if, if, if musicals uh, uh, can, can change the political system. I mean, certainly, I think shows like Lacage and Balsettos and Fun Home have opened a dialogue about LGBTQ uh, relationships, uh, you know, over the years, a chorus line even, too. Um, you know, before that, I think that those like South Pacific and Cabaret, which we've talked about before, um, you know, open political dialogue. But in terms of how messy American politics is, American government is, I think 1776 is just, is great. It, it's, it just shows how difficult government is in this mm-hmm. country. And the ambivalence and difficulty of compromise, which is, it, you know, it was necessary. It had Adams needed to get that declaration through, but unfortunately, he had to, you know, compromise. And our, you know, this this nation's original sin, slavery, was 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 not taken off the table. It was kept in the document, and um, you know that that's a chilling moment that that both the northern liberals and the conservative and, and uh, you know southerners and and the, the guy from Pennsylvania, you know, it, they're all complicit. We're all complicit as Americans, but that's that's history. And and and, and it, it, how we can do better. That we knew we could do better in 1969 when the show premiered. And I think every time we see it, we think we can do better. And look how far we've come. Look how not far we've come. It's the same. That's a political musical. I think anyone running for office should see. Is there a musical people should see in their youth? I think every young child, um, and I might be showing my age because I, 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 but do you ever see the Mary Martin Peter Pan? Oh, yeah. Um, as a child. Yeah. yeah. As a child, yeah. <laughs> no, my mother taught you know, the VHS. It was the color version she did, like, mm-hmm. in the 60s. Yeah, a few times, and I it was it's it's still magical. It's still mm-hmm. wonderful. Like now they have it on black and white, all the various versions. Well, I don't know if a child, a ten-year-old or a five-year-old, like I was, um, would would understand it now. But if they have an interest in stories and theater and performing, I still think you can't beat that because mm, yeah. it's it's a classic story. It's a lot of fun. The way Robbins. It's the, the staging and the dancing together. And Mary Martin is just wonderful. And, you know, it's hard to capture those kinds of performers in the movie. I, I, she wasn't really successful in movies, and Ethel Merman really wasn't, you know, those great stars of the Golden Age. But for some reason, Martin did a lot of television, mm-hmm. and she comes across on TV um, better than she would, I think, in any movie she made. I saw that it was it was a television event when I was a kid in like I want to say eighty nine late eighties, and uh, everybody watched like everybody watched it so like every all the kids you know knew the show so um, like you could sing a song from it and other kids knew it. Um, what is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state? you didn't think was possible to get to? Uh, I, I think this, the one song that comes to mind is um, I Loved You Once in Silence uh, in, from Camelot. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a precursor to kind of, but not really, because it, it's more, it's even sadder than Sorry Grateful from Company, because at least they're acknowledging it and moving on with it. But it, 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 it's, it's a song where 
for the entire show, Guinevere and Lancelot have been, or at least Guinevere has been unable to uh, fully accept and express her love for Lancelot. And when she can and she's ready for it emotionally, um, she can't because of the political turmoil that has, that's been inflicted on the round table and on Arthur, her husband's government. And she would be a traitor, and the, the whole—it's it, a very moving, complicated uh, moment. And and the song itself is—I think Alan J. Lerner said they wrote it. Um, he and Lowe wrote it, passionless. There's like a restraint to it. You would think of the song saying, "Finally, I love you," you know, would have a little more uh, romanticism to it. There's a melancholy. There's like a, a, a Schubert a sad sonata kind of feeling to it um and it's uh it's it's a very uh it, it, you know it, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a sad that show is so strange because the mm. first act is very fun it, it gets the bad rap for having a really fun uh, over long first act and the second act that's shorter but really dreary so it feels longer but i i just i find that an incredibly beautiful moment all right, well, let's um, then segue into the topic, which we've been kind of talking about already a little bit, but uh, we'll be talking about follies. Um, and I guess before we get into the what we're going to talk about with it, just um, start with why you wanted to talk about the topic. As I said in our, our uh, introduction, in our, our early questions, uh, it has had a tremendous impact on me. It's a show I've been thinking a lot about with show business as a metaphor for America, and it, it, it's, it, has, it has something for everyone. It has, it's the one song time show with a lot of dance in it, um, you know, uh, and uh, a, a big pass. That's why it's prohibitive. You know, you can do a, a production of Passion at your college or your, you know, or, or your local theater, but you can't do Follies, you know. So big, but um, but that that's why it just I I the show means the world to me. I'll give my own little history that I I saw the Paper Mill Playhouse production of it, uh, as a teenager, and um, that's when I fell in love with it, and um, you know have seen all the, you know subsequent New York productions, uh, that have been here, and um, yeah, I also. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the show, and um, it's actually my grandfather's favorite musical, so he right. saw the original, so we have that to talk about. <laughs> um, but yeah, so last year, uh, I read Ted Chapin's book, uh, Everything is Was Possible, which is, he was like a, a gopher, an intern, on before the word intern was really used, I guess, <laughs> on the... Yeah. Uh, on the original production and I guess almost 20 years ago now the book came out um I think you're probably right yeah and I bought it right when it came out only just <laughs> only just read it last year but um it was I I really I really enjoyed the book and um what they talk about and it I, I think will inform some of what we're going to talk about with the show but it really it really, I thought, for me at least, it brought me into that world, into the world of 
the 70s, the early 70s, and putting that show on. I was even having dreams at one point <laughs> when I was yeah. reading it of, like, the I dreams. was I was there, you know, because it's, it's really that evocative of the of the time with the detail because you know he he was there too um it's kind of an end of an era of that kind of big out of town that the show that went out of town to boston or or Mm -hmm. philadelphia or whatever because it's four years before chorus line started what we now would call the workshop process i mean i think that shows have been developed in readings and stuff they weren't thought of that way it was just oh we're going to go to hal's office and read the script and steve will play the score it wasn't, a, you know, what we have now where people sign contracts and all that, and it's, you know, um, so, uh, but then they would take it out of town and work on it. But, right. But uh, it is, it's, it's a great time capsule. You know, Bali is a, is a peculiar show, but the two other shows we're playing in Boston were Lolita, My Love, which is the learner mm. piece based on the Nabokov uh, book, an unsettling show, if there ever was one, and Pretty Bell, which starred Angela Lansbury as a manic depressive, alcoholic, uh, southern bank, Belle, who loses her husband, and then she finds out that he was a racist, so she lets minority men have their way with her. It's a very peculiar piece. And so those are the three shows that were in Boston that winter, spring. And they're all weird, but Follies is, <laughs> is the, it does, does weird in a good way, I suppose. Yeah, but, there, um, there is a section of the of that book, uh, of uh, Ted Chapin's book, where he he goes to see Pretty Bell, um, and so there's I, I, a little I, bit about yes. that. I think is also that that he I think he went. I think that the the, the the passages he went and ran into James Goldman, and they both agreed it was unsalvageable or something. Right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, just, something, yeah. it is. It's it, it just Angela Lansbury's commitment to the role. It, it actually got a cast album like ten years later. Talking about the seventies, Follies actually did the story of it's writing as gestation begins in the 60s right um uh it, it was well, you know sondheim had had a very unhappy experience working with richard rogers and arthur lawrence on who i hear a waltz and i think that that and the commercial failure of anyone can whistle and kind of forum uh, the funny thing happened when the forum kind of got great reviews except for the score you know, it was kind of, you know, they thought, well, he's a great, very witty lyricist, but, you know, he's not much of a of a composer. And I think that he kind of made a vow to himself. I, I'm just going to, I'm not taking any just plain lyric writing jobs. I'm going to do both. And he went to James Goldman, who at that point uh, had written a musical with John Kander uh, called The Family Affair with his brother, William Goldman. Um, this was before Kander met Ebb. Um, and they had been, I think, summer camp friends in the Midwest and, and moved to New York together and all that. But but I think Goldman was trying to sow his oats as a playwright and uh, was working online in winter at the same time. So this collaboration began. Um, Goldman said, I want to do a show about a reunion, but I don't want it to be like a high school reunion. And he read about uh, the, the old Zigbell girls would have reunions, parties, you know, in, in New York. You know, uh, I don't know if they were in dilapidated theaters or not, but some sort of club room or something. Right. And so that's an interesting idea. So that's that's how they started working on it. Um, it's, you know, the original versions of it um, have most of the character songs, like Could I Leave You and um, Look at Me and Too Many Mornings and 
uh, a lot of other cut stuff. It was it was more it was less glamorous and certainly less ethereal and um, uh, poetic than the version that became Follies. It was more realistic, um, and it, uh, it 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 had a murder mystery element to right. it. Right, I remember reading. Yeah that and it, it's so funny to to think that that was in there because that seems so far away from what the show is now i think they all the, the premise was everybody had a reason for killing everyone else and that you know like phyllis had a reason for wanting to kill sally sally had a reason for wanting <laughs> to kill so kill dan and back and forth and it was kind of who's gonna kill who rather than you know who who done it? Right. Um, oh, I see. And I, I, yeah, and I, I I think I don't think anybody killed each other in the end. Um, as as far as I know, they just kind of it kind of ends similarly yeah. the way it ends now. But a far more realistic show that um, Hal Prince read a draft of and didn't like. He he liked the score. He wasn't you know he no denying he he knew his friend's talent, but he passed on it. And it was given to, I believe, David Merrick mm-hmm. and Leland Hayward, who had produced Gypsy, at one, you know, in, in, the, in the 50s. And that fell through. Stuart Ostrow, who uh, produced Apple Tree in 1776 and later Pippin, and that fell through. And I think what got Hal Prince to do it was that the, the Stuart Ostrow production was going to happen the same season as company and company the production that Ostra was planning again fell through and Sondheim had to write company he had to write he had the full songs done he had finished the score and Hal Prince said well where's where's the rest of the score he said oh this fell through and I don't know if I can do it he said fine I'll I'll look into doing the girls upstairs again if you finish Follies I've finished company so that's what happened. That was the compromise that was made. Um, so wait, so know. Sondheim had started Company, or he had started Company uh, in, in the late '60s mm-hmm. uh, as he was writing the girls upstairs, which became Follies, and a production of the, the, uh, one of the that production that was going to happen of the girls upstairs fell through, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to continue with Company until he could get his other show on as well. So Hal Prince as a compromise said, you finish company and I'll seriously consider doing the girls mm. upstairs. Yeah. Which became Follies. Yeah. Uh I mean, there was a lot of names going on back because we went through a lot of different producers and it was a five year period. It was sixty five yeah. to nineteen seventy, seventy one. Yeah, it's just interesting because like when I think about how like as it not a, you know before I learned more about the history of it, how I kind of thought about those that period in those shows. It was like first there was Company, and then there was Follies, you know. And it just you know I just always thought of it as like this linear, like Company then Follies. But it was more they were the shoot the two shows were much more intertwined in time, in yeah. yeah, in yeah. development um, than you know than I initially, you know, would have realized. I think anybody would feel the same way. I mean, and they're both, you know, so, you know, it doesn't feel like anything was rushed or it doesn't, you know, everything's so beautifully put together. You wouldn't think that 
they were being written at the same time, right. essentially. And they're yeah. so they're like so different in my mind, you know that it's yeah. Except for the marriage, you know, they, they both take place in contemporary New York in a way. Right. But they are they are they are pretty different. Um, certainly in tone, Company is a little more uh, lighthearted um, than 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 Follies. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, by this time, Prince had become a major director. You know, Cabaret and and Zorba and Company. Uh, you know, kind of made, you know, he, he was more than just the producer now. So I, I think he he was held to a high standard and and I think he felt that he had to, had to expand his horizons artistically and could do a more avant-garde um, poetic piece that that was kind of dark and moody like follies mm-hmm. and, and, and take more chances with staging and lighting and scenery. I mean, cabaret, uh, in its original version, the, the cabaret set was, 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 a, was a metaphor. wasn't quite realistic, but there were realistic scenes, you know, in the boarding house and so forth. Right. Um, by the time you get to follies, there, 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 there's no dressing room. There's no, it's just that big empty, space and maybe there's some rubble and there's maybe there's a staircase and it doesn't, there's no real elaborate um you know uh, set until the loveland fantasy sequence um uh but you know thank goodness those five years happened because by the time 1971 came along there was kind of a nostalgia thing going on on broadway that was the year of the no no nanette revival with you know killer and and, and bars from the old, uh, you know, uh, Busby Berkeley musicals. Um, they were talking about, uh, you know, the old days in a in a in a in a, in a nostalgic way, old entertainment. Um, they were talking about, you know, the, the generation gap, and, and so it was a it was a perfect time, and there were people you could cast who had been in the Ziegfeld Follies, like right. Bouchetay, and and. Or who, who, who just were right for the kinds of parts that we're playing. Alexis Smith was right for Phyllis, you know, that she, you know, and it was kind of a surprise. Oh, oh, this, this B-movie actress, she can sing and dance and, you know, and pull that off. You know, the cast was right. There was a familiarity, everybody in the cast, you know, um, you know, people knew Alexis Smith from movies or Yvonne DiCarlo from the movies or the Munsters. Or, or Gene Nelson from the movies, Dorothy Collins from television. You know, there was a familiarity thing, except for John McMartin, who was just a you know stage actor that right. was people were comfortable with, and and but who had the most. The play is really about him, and he has the most devastating breakdown of all of them. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting, like that. There's like kind of like a a simultaneity with the how people experienced it, the original production, um, that, you know, with the timing of it, that people like us seeing it now, well, like we experience it in a different way because we were later on and um, we can't like look at those actors and, and have that feeling when we look at them that they were actually... You can't get what was there in 1971, which I, I, I think works to the pieces detriment and um mm. it really hit the zeitgeist at the right time and it might not have had the same impact it did you know had it gotten 
on stage uh, in 67 or 68. Mm. So Prince then kind of took out the... Oh, yes. He, 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 there were no ghosts, as far mm-hmm. as I know, in the early version. They would sort of revert to their early young person behavior as old people. So Sally would start acting like she was 20 years old, but which I think could, would be is, is certainly interesting and strange, but I think I think they wanted to avoid, you know, the notion of the ghost coming on stage and and you know, and, and and then they have to have them in a different part of the state. And and how Prince just said, "We'll just use light, you know. We don't have to put them in in you know caked up makeup." I mean, in in, in the in, at the end of the day, I think they did wind up putting on a little, yeah. you know, white makeup to make them look a little more ghostly. But they just used a lot um, of of lighting to to like, evoke uh, ghosts and, and, and the younger versions of these characters. Um, I think that that was one contribution. I think eliminating the murder, who will kill who uh, aspect. I think that that work. I think that that Prince was influenced by um, European cinema, by like Ingmar Bergman and certainly Fellini. Mm-hmm. The story he tells, he's told, you know, he used to tell in interviews and stuff that he, and it might be in his autobiography, that he was asked to do a movie, a musical of Eight and a Half, or he, somebody had screened it for him and said, oh, you should do this as a musical, perhaps, and he didn't, but he was interested in the techniques of of, of, of Fellini in, in that film and I think of a movie like Wild Strawberries like with Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman's film where the older man is has dreams of going back to his uh, kind of surreal version of his childhood and people from his past uh, I, I think that that influenced him as a director as well as you know stage techniques talked about the, the, the Danke Theater in, uh, in Russia and, and, and so forth but um I, I think he gave it a clarity and a poetry that was not there. I, I think he just wanted bigness, and he thought that the girls upstairs had a smallness and hmm. didn't have a metaphor, because he always talked about the metaphor of the musical and so forth. Um, and, I, you know, it kind of became uh, a pet project for something he didn't want to do five years earlier. I, I think that he began to really identify with the midlife crisis aspect of it. You know, I think he was in his early 40s, you know, as they were putting it on. And I, I, I think he really grew to love, I know he grew to love the piece, he told me. But, um, <laughs> and when he, you know, in his office, at least when I, the times I was there. And then there's kind of like the, the smaller changes, I guess, as it, as it, you know, neared opening, just the, the, the number of song replacements and... You know, I'm that. Still Here was written out of town, yeah. um, which is a, a great, great song. And for whatever reason, they were, there was a song in, in Phyllis's Bali sequence uh, moment. There was a song called Uptown Downtown. That's really quite good um, and not terribly different from the story of Lucy and Jesse. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, Michael Bennett requested, I think Michael Bennett kind of forced him to come up with a new one. She's stepping out with a swell. Down 
town She's holding hands on the L Hyphenated Harriet The new foe from New Rochelle Michael Bennett was annoyed because Sondheim hadn't written a lot of the, the Follies sequences, the Follies numbers, like We're Gonna Love Tomorrow and, 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 and the Buddy's Blues and so forth. And that was, those were the songs that required a lot of choreography. Right. So he was rushing to do them in rehearsal. And as you recall from the book, they rehearsed on a, on a mock-up of the set. Maybe it wasn't even a mock-up. Maybe it just was the set, th- yeah. not just not on the stage. Um, in the Bronx. The Bronx. Yeah. yeah in, in the fellers. Yeah, you drive up to the Bronx in '71, and you're in your in your in your limousine. Uh, but um, but uh, it. I think he was annoyed that he had to rush these numbers through, and I don't think he was ever quite satisfied with Uptown Downtown and Mac Boy Foxtrot, which is a kind of throwaway cute song. They wanted to give. Yvonne DeCarlo, who was a pretty big star at that point, a song with more gravitas that was more in focus with the theme of the show, and certainly I'm Still Here, uh, you know, is, and it's a, it's a great song, and, you know, as, as nice as Can Act Like Boxtrot is, the world is, is better for it mm. being a, a curiosity piece on a cut sign time album. I think it's in the Birdcage too, the the Mike Nichols movie. Oh really? <laughs> I think Nathan Lane does like a couple of bars of it. Oh funny. Yeah, yeah, I remember that that part of the book too, when you know it described Sondheim like, you know, having to keep going back and and writing that song and writing "I'm Still Here." And well, first he was first he was rewriting "Canap Boy Foxtrot" over and over again. Um, they made it longer. Um, yeah. I, I yeah, it, it's a cute. It's a one, it's a one joke song. You know, can that boy foxtrot, and um, the emphasis on the f, and um, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, you know, it, it, uh, you know, one chorus uh, is great, but I think the longer they made it, you know, just diminishing returns. Right. A false alarm, a broken arm, an imitation Hitler, and with Hitler charm, but oh. Boy, fox trot. His mouth is mean. He's not. It's funny that that uh, I'm still here is based on. I think Yvonne DeCarlo must have gone around the rest of her life saying, "Oh, it's based. He wrote it based on my life." It's actually sometimes it's based on Joan Crawford's life, oh. the, the the great movie star of the mm-hmm. of the thirties and onward, and it, it, it does chronicle Joe business. And the social, the social politics of the United States, from the Depression to the war to the, you know, the witch hunt, the communist, the Act, communist witch hunts, to, you know, defining stardom of these people in the 60s, for a 30-year period. It's quite a remarkable um, piece of, of American history. I mean, you can learn right. from it, you know, Dee bathosphere, right. you know, what is that, or... or, or uh, I've been through Brenda Fraser. She was kind of the Paris Hilton or or Kim Kardashian of 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 eighty five years ago. So. Yeah, yeah. It also just makes me think, like, again about like the the time period of it and like how those references yeah. hit a certain time, you know, for people. Times and fun times. I've seen them all in 
like very triumphantly but it's not it, but it is it is because she what else can she do right you know what else could you know davis and, and proper do you know i guess after that you know carlotta campion was going to write her memoir who knows mm-hmm. you know um so yeah she was almost through it right <laughs> yeah also really interesting that you know i mentioned michael bennett who had who had had uh, success. He had gotten good reviews in, show, in shows that really were not good or, or, or flawed, like Henry Sweet Henry and Coco. Mm-hmm. He was thought, his work was thought of as the best thing. And then he did a show called Promises, Promises, which we all know is based on the apartment. He was, he was a rising choreographer, and Prince thought he used him on company, and the incentive was, well, yeah, it's not really a dance show, but I'll hire Donna McKechnie, who was your, you know, your, your, your muse to do a dance, and thus they did the TikTok dance. But Bennett was already felt he was ready to move on to be a director and choreographer, right. and Prince had to get him to co-direct the show. in order to get Bennett to do the show, which I, I think you know he had, Hal had a hunch that this kind of showbiz milieu would be great for Bennett's uh, aesthetic. He, 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 excelled in in showbiz type choreography like in in uh yeah, side by side that number and company all that kind of stuff he loved old showbiz or the finale of chorus line and he really knew how to make that that, that those kind of numbers tick yeah but he didn't want to do it um he wanted to start directing and i think that uh prince the incentive here was okay well it's a big show you can co-direct it with me I think that added to a lot of tension. I think that Bennett, you know, I know that Bennett's book, book was too dark and somber and, um, you know, and that, but, but Prince, he was the boss at the end of the day. He was also the, the producer of the show and it was, you know, it was his, it was his baby. Do you think the tension between, you know, the two directors, like, help the piece in, in a way, like, um, just that sometimes tension is good, you know? I don't know if it did in this case, because I don't think it was the kind of tension where they found consensus or they were willing to compromise. I think it was just two massive egos, and mm. I mean that in, in not in a derogatory way. They were brilliant. Um, that just got in each other's way, and I think at the end of the day, there was resentment on Bennett's part that Prince was the older man, the producer, the director, the more experienced hand, and he just said, no, you know, I, we're doing it as as written. I think that Bennett wanted Sondheim to write, turn it more into an opera, 
And Sondheim said, well, no, I can't do that to my collaborator. And right. it's his show, too. I, I, I think Bennett was, like most director choreographers, who I think aren't as always as text, um, mm-hmm. of the text, I think he was a master manipulator. I think he liked, that when he started doing his own shows at Chorus Line, yeah, it would have been great if he'd done another show with Sondheim or, or whoever, or a show with Kander and Ebb or whoever of that period. But he couldn't be the muscle. He couldn't be the driving force with major writers. We would pick people, I mean, I don't mean to disparage these people, who were not as powerful or didn't have as much clout, um, you know, like an Ed Cleban, and a, even though Hamlish was big from the movies, you know, started, people starting out so he could manipulate them. And mm-hmm. I think... A lot of director choreographers do that, and I think that uh, Fosse certainly did that. I think that you can even say Jerry Robbins did, even though he was working with like me. Leonard Bernstein is no, you know, second, you know, <laughs> rate guy, you know. Um, but I, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that they they want things to land, they want applause, they want the number to be successful, and mm-hmm. they don't think in terms of the connect issue or the arc of the show, um, they think more in terms of, of audience reaction, not so much, you know, being a collaborator with the authors and being an interpretive artist. I, yeah. I could be wrong. I mean, I, I know that there are people who, who think that he would, that, that would probably disagree. I, I, so I don't know. But thank God Michael Bennett did it. Mm-hmm. That's a rambling way of saying, I don't know. I don't think the yeah. tension helped. I think that his showbiz choreography, that that benefited the show mm-hmm. and I think that complemented um you know Prince's perhaps loftier impulses um but I mean I don't I I, I think I mean Hal was 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 his, his mentor was George Abbott and Abbott was certainly as commercial as they come mm-hmm. you know so I don't think that he was some avant-garde right you know but I I, I think in this case Bennett was looking less for the poetry of the piece and more for the punch, the landing and the number. Mirror, the mirror number, who is that woman? I mean, that is, in a way, the show, and he was able to do that. So I feel bad. I don't want to denigrate, you know, him or... or but, right, but, no, but, but yeah, I, but you're I, right. But I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I think he, he had a different... He, he liked Neil Simon. He liked, you know, these... Who, who are great writers, but who are punchier and mm-hmm. not as, 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 uh, languid and, uh, and poetic as, as a, as a, as a Jim Goldman, you know? Yeah. I um, know. I think you're right. The mirror number like is like that metaphor, that, that dance. It is, it is the show. And am I right? Today, what? Sorry. Even, t- yeah. even today, I mean, you do diff- I mean, I'm sure in paper mill, I think I, I was a different choreographer, obviously, and different people do different versions, but the concept is there, and that's right. and it's concept of the number. And so, am I remembering correctly in that that was like an early song that yes, they and, had from the like, and he was working on from the beginning. Yes, I think that 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 was the one big production number that was in the girls upstairs. And the original concept was it was to be a group of ladies, but their one was missing and had died. Mm, so right. But, it, but so Bennett couldn't do it, and he said it would be great if there was a kit line of thirty-two girls, but with six, it just looks weird. Let me show you my way. And he 
did show him his way, and Sondheim said, oh, well, uh, that's great, too. And Sondheim, rather generously, in an interview with the, around the, at times, said that the mirror number and the opening number of Company were the two greatest numbers he'd seen on the musical mm-hmm. stage up to that point. opportunities mm-hmm. and the fact that their the choices they made were now being questioned not just by teenagers not just by you know the kids in hair but guys in their 30s and 40s who are a little younger than them there's a wonderful interview uh, that Sondheim did I, in the, I read it in the public library the, the Lincoln Center Library Archives years ago where, you know, he talks about the critics, you know, not liking, well, the, the, the major New York Times critics were Clive Barnes and Walter Kerr. And Clive Barnes didn't like it. Clive Barnes was pretty much despised at that point because he was a bit moronic. Um, he said that all musicals need to have rock scores now after hair and old pronouncements that just made no sense. Right. I mean, so Sondheim basically goes, dismisses him but Clive Barnes, you know, he's a jerk, you know, whatever. Not, not, not those words. Then Walter Kerr, he says, you know, Walter Kerr, I feel bad for him. I feel sorry for him because Folly is about Walter Kerr. It's about a late, it's about a late to middle, a middle to late, middle age to late middle age man who, you know, is has is fairly wealthy and successful in his field, and it makes him face, you know, his regrets, and he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, it is interesting how Follies kind of Im- implicates its audience in a way, like, uh, or the the audience, I guess, in the seventies of a certain age that was going to see it, but making yeah, making them look at things and in a way, and it doesn't leave you feeling good about good about it in any way. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's the thing. I think Michael Bennett wanted Follies to have a more give an audience a fuzzier feeling on the way out mm-hmm. a chorus line does that but in the same way does it really because right. you've just sat there for two hours in, in this bizarre audition where they bare their souls and they, they come out and you can't tell one from the other unless you're really squinting you know or you really know what donna mckechnie looks like you know right. you can't tell in that finale uh they're, they're in an assembly line you know so it, it, it's, yeah. it's funny that the but maybe having that showbiz device at the end made him think that it gave the audience a better feeling. Yeah. The older you get, perhaps the more difficult it is a show to take. Um, 
because, you know, a lot of young people in the 70s were very attracted to it. You mm -hmm. know, certainly I, 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 I think that it would be interesting to, to actually read. I mean, Ted Chapin wrote that book some years after right. his, his, his apprenticeship. But I wonder if he would feel differently. And you could say Follies does end, hopefully, uh, with, with hope, because the, the couples are back together and... Yes. And they realize that they're they're gonna be with the the person they've chosen, even if they have, even if even with the regrets, even with the that they're I gonna think, they walk out, you know. There's hope, I think, for Ben and Ben and, and Phyllis mm -hmm. more so than than um right uh, than Sally and Buddy. And also, Sally is a a very disturbed lady, and um. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a real sadness to that character. Um, I don't think that she's changed at all. And I don't think that Ben has changed at all. I think probably Buddy and Phyllis have, and that they'll have to continue to yeah. be the rock to those right. bad marriages. Um, yeah. Know, uh, but uh, at least they've come to terms with their anger with each other. And yeah. as you say, there is hope there, at least in a cathartic, in a sad way. Right. Whereas something like the end of Chorus Line, which is big and splashy, and yet you, as you say, like, er, like you don't see anybody. It becomes just like so. Like what yes. seems like a hopeful song and image and dance number has has some of some sadness underneath yes. as well. But I, and I, I think that you and I might see that, or other people. But I think that a general audience might mm -hmm. might not have seen that. Right. Also, I think that there are people, you know, it, you know, they, they, life just goes on in follies. They leave the theater and they have to just, you know, face, dear God, it is tomorrow. They have to face, you know, right. the next day. Uh, and, you know, Cassie gets the job. Oh, thank goodness. You know, there's a, there's a sentimental aspect to that, you know, and, and uh, you know, maybe Cassie and the director will make amends, you know. So it, it gets a little hokey. Uh Certainly, the movie does. But Follies, in, in many ways, is the pre, is he stole a lot. I mean, stole. I mean, we're all eat from the same cake. But he used a lot of the ideas that he developed in Follies and Company. That they worked on in Follies and Company in a chorus line, but put it in a more palatable package. Mm -hmm. You know, a more youthful package, perhaps because they were, you know, dancers. Um, I think that Ben is always cast, almost always, incorrectly hmm. in every production. And I think it's because they did the Philharmonic concert in the 80s, and they got great voices, and George Hearn played Ben. Now, George Hearn is terrific, and he, but I, I don't think Ben is a George Hearn of a booming baritone. Mm -hmm. I think that, that it, it, he, he gives you that gives you the idea of, you know, it, it's too obvious. He's successful right away. He comes on, and he's very, and he sings in this wonderful voice, like like Ron Raines did, and, and Lawrence Picard and Paper Mill, and that's that's fine. But there's nowhere to go, and I don't think the audience is as shocked at the end that right. this guy has a breakdown. Whereas with John McMartin pleasant actor they knew from maybe some television work certainly from the theater when when this guy that we're kind of comfortable with who's a decent actor i'll remember him from whatever 
when he has a breakdown, when he collapses over the course of the evening, it's more shocking and it's more, it packs more of a punch. Um, I think an ideal person to play Ben in a production or in a movie, if they ever make it one day, is Matthew Broderick. Hmm. I think that the audience, an audience knows him from Ferris Bueller or, or the producers or, or whatever television spots he's been on. He's done a number of guest things, you know, over the years. And he, they're comfortable with him, and he is not threatening. He doesn't have a threatening baritone voice, and he, he but he can sing, and he's he's competent in, in that department. And by the end, you know, it, it when you know Matthew Broderick having a breakdown that's not a comic, you know, Leo Bloom breakdown, I think would be quite shattering. And uh, that's my casting recommendation. <laughs> Yeah. Future productions. But I think you bring up a good point that the the breakdowns that happen at the end of the show, it like it there does have to be sort of like an element of and I guess an element of surprise there where you're it feels inevitable in a way, but you're not you're not expecting it. You'd you'd think that Sally would have a breakdown and sing a song like Losing My Mind, but mm -hmm. Ben that that's that's why the number is so startling because he's you know, playing, you know, this cool Fred Astaire type character. Right. And then, you know, he cracks. Some get a boot from shooting off cablegrams Or buzzing bells to summon the staff Some climbers get their kicks From social politics Me, I like to love me, I... Me, I don't like to... Some break their asses passing their bar exams Lay out their lives like lines in a graph One day they're diplomats Well, bully and Let's move on then to the next section, which is Why Is This So Good? And we're going to be talking about the song Class from Chicago. And uh, why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? Well, in my past uh, at the visits with you on this podcast, uh, I think we did My White Knight, then we did Someone in a Tree. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I like, you know, we're not going to, we just talked at Atlanta about Sondheim and let me try to get another writer, I, uh, writers I like, mm -hmm. uh, and let's talk about a more lightweight song. Yeah. So I love Tander and Ebb. Um, in some ways, I almost love them more than Sondheim, but no, they're, they're, <laughs> it's, it's apples and oranges. But uh, Chicago is a, a really a fearless score um, by them, and it's it's not a bad number in it. I, I think it, it all works. Mm, and, yeah. Um, and and class is the one song in the show. That is not well, one of the few songs in the show, I should say. It's not the style of like a vaudeville performer. Yeah. It's not. Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of the one book character song, you know, that plot song that that moves it along at some at some point. Not really a plot song, but but you, you, and you know what I, I mean. And it's it's a great comedy song, and it, I use it. Yeah. I think it's a perfect comedy song. Um, yeah. Because it's not it a. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, just, it's not presentational, I think. Yes, yes. exactly, yeah, perfect, yeah. It's, um, uh, it's, 
it's just it's it's a masterclass in how to write that kind of comedy mm-hmm. song. I mean, Fred Ebb has wrote Andrew and Ebb wrote Blast, and there's a song from Woman of the Year called "The Grass Is Always Greener," which is two ladies like in class in Chicago sitting and talking, you know, and 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 you know, shooting the breeze, and uh, and then there's a song that was cut from the visit that's similar in to those two songs I mentioned called "You Know Me, I Never Gossip," and then they wound up <laughs> gossip. But it's 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 a great setup. It's these yeah. two classless broads talking about how shameful and classless the world is. Nobody has the more class. But this very serious Franz Schubert kind of a compliment. And the music is funny. I mean, it's not that the musical idiom is funny that they they use. And it's it's it just the audience is just along for the ride because. He play. He sets up the game that the rhyming game. What's the next ass line mm-hmm. rhyme that he's going to use? You know, everyone's a pain in the ass. Whatever in the class. Okay, that's great. Snake in the grass. Whatever happened in the class. What's he gonna do next? And by the time when she says, uh, you know, uh, no one's the climax of, of, of that of that game of that rhyme scheme is when no one says oops when they're passing their gas. And I'm never one for potty humor. <laughs> I love that joke, and I, I, yeah. I love the line because it it just it's the climax of, of the gag. Whatever happened to fair dealing and pure ethics and nice manners? Why is it everyone now is a pain in the Class. Class. The concept of these two, you know, broads, you know, sitting there and whatever that the class, and it's, it's she's a murderess and she's a scheming matron, a very, very unethical matron of the prison. It is. I feel like also there's just like this element of truth in it too, because oh, and yeah. you say like you know the truth is you know it's funny because it's true, but that there are. No matter how low class you, you know, people you perceive them to be, that there's still standards within that, like, you know, within that that group of of lower, you know, these broads, as you say, that they, yeah, yeah. there's still standards, and it's funny that, you know, they're but would would they have, would they hold themselves the same standards? I mean, you know, I mean, would they hold the door? You know. Uh, you know, do they have fine value, a fine greeting and good morals, you know? That's just what I find funny. But then again, as you were saying, yeah. you know, they, they might be oblivious to it. Right. Well, I don't know if they have it, but I feel like they would like to see it. <laughs> yes. Well, perhaps there's a yearning, there's a sentimental yeah. side to, uh, oh, it's like in the song from Sweet Charity, you know, Baby Dream Your Dream. That's very cynical at the end, they... They want to dream that dream too. I agree about the music too. How um, well, I love the, the, I guess it's like the B section of the song where it, it gets very lyrical and they're like yes, in yeah. these running like parallel thirds like up and down, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, it just sounds very it sounds beautiful. Oh, there ain't no gentleman to open up. The doors, there ain't no ladies now, there's only pigs 
and whores, and even kids will knock you down so they can pass. Nobody's got no class. I bet John Kander, you know, who loves classical music, mm -hmm. and I bet he never thought, oh, I'd be writing this beautiful Schubert-inspired piece for, for this situation, but that's what adds to the comedy of it. It, it is... It is beautiful uh, in its, uh, if you had taken out the words, you'd think, oh, this is very pretty. But yeah, and the rhyme, I feel like the rhyme, and this is Fred Ebb just like knowing exactly, like having these sharp rhymes, but maybe, you know, so I, in the original, in the, in the original cast and the revival, there's slightly different lyrics at the end from the film version. Yes, but before the last line I, uh, is, everybody you watch got his brains in his crotch. Holy crap, holy crap. Whatever happened to class. Yeah. In the movie, Fred was allowed to put in his original version, which was every uh, every guy is a snot, every girl is a twat. Holy shit, holy shit. <laughs> what a shame, whatever happened to class. And that Bob Fosse was the one who said, that's this Bob Fosse we're talking about. It's going a little too far, don't you think? Uh. You made him go back to the less... The less... Uh, gruesome couplet but um yes I, I i i was aware of that it's cut from the movie it was filmed for the movie oh interesting it's but well it's on the it's on the soundtrack anyway and i love the that it ends with an extra rhyme and this is also i like the because then it's after the holy whichever Crap, version you're doing what, it, a shame, what a shame and then what became, became of class and it's the the other you know class lines don't have any rhymes i don't think in it's them and, yeah little inner rhyme he didn't do fancy stuff like that not that nothing that's terribly fancy but it just gives it a an extra punch yeah yeah that's, to end the song it's just, i don't yeah. know i definitely i my ear definitely notices it and i definitely enjoy it everybody you watch He's got his brains in his crotch. Holy crap, holy crap, what a shame, what a shame, what became of class. Well, let's move on to our final section, Something Wonderful. Um, obviously no live theater right now, but anything else in the musical theater universe, um, that we are looking forward to? I'll plug the, uh, Howard Ashman documentary. Oh, yeah. I recommend that Howard on Disney Plus. Uh, and it got, got me thinking, you know, I, I am, I, I'm very excited when we can go back to the theater about next summer or in the fall or, you know, he started his own theater with his, with his, uh, his lover and, and another friend, yeah. uh, the WPA Theater, uh, which is no longer there. But I hope that when we come out of this, that there's new artists, there's new vitality, there's urgency to move beyond Broadway. There's more to Broadway in this city mm -hmm. for theater. I certainly want to, if not start a theater, then, then look to newer producers, newer venues uh, who want to, you know, start a grassroots movement when this is over. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. 
You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at scene song and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald and check back here in two weeks for our next episode.